the main time our paths crossed was at Air Studios when they came in to listen to uh, the playback of Be Here Now and were pinned right. to the back wall by the deafening PA and Liam singing the entire album this far away from their faces. Welcome back to episode two of the Session Recall podcast. Uh, in episode one, I think we finished off with Nick meeting up with Omar, not meeting up with, but starting to work with Owen Morris. And Ash was the first session, um, which obviously leads on to you working with, obviously, like Oasis, Morning Glory, um, Be Here Now. Um, am I right in thinking that you did two albums of Ash and there's one in between? So you did 1977, Free All Angels? Um, I did three three albums with ash so i also worked on um on the second album um nuclear sounds which wasn't recorded with owen but because they went to rockfield they loved the coach house so much they decided they'd go back to do nuclear sounds there um which is another great album so they came back and obviously i was the studio engineer brought in and that was with chris kimsey so legendary producer lovely lovely man chris kimsey um, I, I think there's some great tracks on that album. Obviously, a completely different process to working with someone like Owen, and it wasn't the kind of mental and the, the boys still had a good time. We all still had a good time, but um, yeah, the process wasn't quite as mental as that 1977 session, which was, as I said before, absolutely crazy. We're doing the sick party and everything that was involved in that—the mushrooms, the acid, the mushroom teas—you know, the kind of yeah, oh god. It all went on um a lot more civilized but still good fun because chris is a lovely man um yeah and it was a great album um and then bits when they went back with owen and working with other producers as well little bits on um third album but i'd also go off and uh with ian lawton who was their front of house guy and tour manager um we like produced some b-sides we went to a few different studios so uh, we went to one in tottenham court road we went to wessex studios which is great to work in Wessex, which is a fantastic studio, and we did a lot of the B-sides there, and that was just me and Ian producing with the band there. Um, so, yes, yeah, so lots of bits for them, boys. I'm sure other people are going to ask, but what was The Sick Party? The Sick Party is a secret track on the end of the album, which involves Mark from Ash um, being sick and then setting off a chain of events, chain of events of other people being sick. Um, Owen's out there. Everyone's oh, you know, off their edge, drunk as it can be, and I'm recording it but Owen had left the speakers up full in the control room and I walk in just as Mark's launching a pile of sick right in front of a U87 and um it came out the speaker so loud I just immediately retched and was like it was just terrific um yeah but uh, that was one of the secret tracks we had another secret track on that album it, which didn't make it because it but it was a contender which was called The Scream which is where we got whenever we felt like it or someone was in the other studio or sometimes just a man walking his dog past the studio um, we got them to come in and do a scream. You had to kind of start off with a kind of emotion, but in silence, and then eventually build up to a little hum, and then eventually that would be a scream at the top of your voice. Um, and we'd fill all the tracks with these people, like saw all these other bands, all these other bands that were in the other studio coming in, and we'd fill all the tracks. Then we'd bounce it down to a stereo and have twenty-two again, and then we'd keep keep going, keep going. Hundreds and hundreds of tracks of different people screaming, and obviously every time we'd all had a drink or felt, felt like it, we'd go in and do a an emotion and a scream, and um, that was that was a contender for the secret track at one point. Yeah. Um, maybe not as commercial as the 
as the uh, sick party. Well, no. Um, and am I right in thinking, were, were Ash the reason why Kingsley... Because Rockfield used to have U47s, didn't they? Like the Valve ones. Yeah. Are Ash one of the reasons why Kingsley decided to stop looking after or decided to sell the U47s off? Um, that was... Well, they were one of the reasons. Well, yeah, I suppose Owen stroke... Stroke Ash, but it wasn't the forty sevens. It wasn't the forty sevens we had. What was he? What was he get? It was the sixty sevens. Right. Okay. That they they ended up going from from the studio into his front room. Yeah. So you have um, to go into your, and yeah. and the SM twos because the SM twos were really rare. Those twelve mics, the Neumann SM twos. He had some Telefunken ones as well, and all of a sudden they disappeared after those sessions because they'd be outside recording sick in the rain. You know, it's sort of twelve grand microphones. Um, Yes, they they were no longer available. Yeah, because I've definitely done it a couple of times. I've had to walk in and go into like the go through Kingsley's kitchen and, and pick up either the U sixty seven or the SM two to use in the session. And that's yeah. Kingsley, and you go into Kings yeah. like they used... just yeah. He's like, what do you need yeah. them for? <laughs> it's like recording Kings. <laughs> yeah, they're no use in your front room. Yeah, there's some there's some right treasures in his front room there. Um, yeah, there used to be loads of those SM twos. They're great mics. Yeah, um, you don't see them stereo mics, so you can. Change the top capsule and stereo image on it. It's great. Mm. We're in the nineties. I'm probably going to avoid talking a little bit about um, like Oasis, um, Morning Glory, Britpop stuff because I think that's been covered quite a bit recently. Um, were there any mm. sessions that you were involved with? That because I've been involved in a few sessions where they haven't seen the light of day. Are there any sessions you've been involved with in that era that might not have been might not have been documented or seen the light of day or released commercially? Yeah, I mean, lots of kind of smaller sessions where bands. I mean, I remember. You know, where bands would kind of come down and the record company were kind of developing or they weren't sure whether they were going to sign them. They would put them in and then we'd do an album or whatever. And sometimes I'd do it, sometimes other producers, and they would never see the light of day. They were kind of like development stroke trials and then the band wouldn't get a deal. I remember when Coldplay um, was signed and then became big, like they sent, the label sent down a stream of Coldplay-esque bands. Um, some really great bands and just to, you know, get an album out of them and then see which one they wanted to sign, which was which was kind of the most Coldplay or that would have the most success. So there was a stream of those bands and loads of those albums never saw the light of day. A couple of those bands, might we crossed paths again, one over in Norfolk, a great band there. Um, but yeah, in that period, 90s, kind of, yeah, lots of, lots of smaller bands, but like big sessions, yeah, there was uh, things like the Robbie Williams session, which was a mental session. Um, never saw the light of light of day. So where was uh, where was the pretty most of most of it pretty unusable. Um, but some good good fun had by all. It who, was his uh, who was doing experimental the, period. Who was doing the Robbie Williams session? Was that in Rockfield? Um, well, actually, another studio that um, that Kingsley owned just down the road. It's kind of like a rehearsal demo studio. So yeah, that was. Um, yeah, fun time. So it was that kind of whole... I went to Glastonbury with him and Liam uh, when Robbie had his dyed blonde hair. Yeah, and we worked on... Owen was mainly writing, worked on quite a lot of songs um, and then recording them, demoing them. A lot of time in the pub, a lot of time spent lying under the desk in a, off on a completely different planet. Um, but yeah, he was good fun, actually. That was, But he was pretty full on at that point. And then teaming up with someone like Owen... <laughs> it just took, all got taken a little bit too far into another level. Oh yeah, another, another one with Owen. We did a version of Urban Hymns, uh, the Verve album. 
which was without Nick McCabe. So we did a full version. Actually, the album, I think it wasn't the final batch of songs that ended up on the album. I think some of the songs that we did for that album ended up on Richard's um, first solo album. Um, and, and some songs that didn't end up on either album. But uh, yeah, um, amazing version because Owen kind of would get them playing live and the songs, the arrangements on were a bit more kind of jammy and had more extended kind of outros and kind of lots of layers. And um, obviously the album they ended up making was a lot more commercial, fantastic songs and, you know, did so well, one of the best-selling albums of all time in the UK. Mm. Um, but yeah, we did that version of it, which is a bit more kind of... Um, earthy a bit more druggy a bit more kind of floaty and i like owen had done on the previous stuff with them i thought it was great but there was no nick mccabe at that point and then when nick rejoined um they decided to re-record the album so which became the version that got released so yeah that was another one this so i think i think the odd track from that has come out maybe on some compilations or yeah. limited edition stuff but there's a whole album there um, that was done with Owen in the coach house again. Yeah, I mean, Neil Kingsley obviously like Rock. He had Rockfield. There was Mono Valley. Um, for a while, it was owned by Rockfield, and then um, Kingsley and Charles kind of broke up the studios. And um, the other place mm. was that Woodlawn, and that was demo studio. Uh, Woodside. 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 Yeah, they had a studio. So Rockfield had a label as well at that point, and um, a few of the bands like I always remember going down and Novocaine band from Newport, great band. We were, we were always down there and I'd record a couple of their demos and they were always down there rehearsing mm. and demoing with one of the Rockfield engineers and my band would go down there and do demos. Um, Kingsley's mates would rehearse down there. Yeah, so there was Mono Valley, kind of Charles's place then, which was originally the rehearsal place for Rockfield. Um, two studios at Rockfield and Woodside. In this era then, were there any, like, what would you say the most interesting bands that you worked with? Who was the most interesting band to work with? I mean, God, the most the most interesting to record creatively, and well, it, it, the most interesting really was was the Beta Band. Um, that was an, another I mentioned him before, Ian Lawton, who worked worked with me on the Ash stuff. Um, he'd introduced me to that band, and I I loved that band. I listened to the three EPs, and then I got to work with them on a few albums after that. Once they came to Rockfield. Um, with another producer doing the kind of first album proper. And then um, I got to do um, uh, Heroes to Zero as the third album, I think it was. Um, and talking of albums that never saw the light of day, I actually did an album with them up in the Highlands of Scotland, which <laughs> never saw the light of day. It's one of the most bizarre records I've ever been involved in, but one of the most amazing times. I. It wasn't. It was trying to grasp what the record was supposed to be, and I think the, uh, the label thought we were going up into a mountain to record this masterpiece that was going to become a commercial success for the band, and it soon became clear we were definitely not there to record a commercial success. Um, yeah, so we had uh, FX Rentals or Dream High might have been back then. We had them drive to Northern Scotland, um, right. play Sackle to Bowie. Um, which is about 26 miles north of Ullapool, so right up there. We had them bring a studio, and the studio was on the side of a mountain, so you couldn't get the van, so then the equipment had to all be carried down this mountain to this cabin of a, of a boat that belonged to John from the band. It was his uncle's, I think. Right. So there was a cabin of a boat. His favourite boat had been transported to the side of a mountain that had no oh road and direct access. So it was like, I think, an 18-hour drive for this van to come up from London. And then the guy had to, all of us, and it was like minus, I don't know, there was like six foot of snow as well. It was like minus seven. 
and the studio had to be built in this cabin. Right. Um, and we spent a couple of weeks up there just traveling around with portable DAT players and recording everything we could find, whether it be barrels on a beach or stones or monuments, just creating all these samples and noises and sounds. And then we take them back to um, this cabin on the side of a mountain. And uh, I'd play all the tapes, sometimes the same time, sometimes one after another. And they'd all have headphones on getting a feed of that and they'd play along. Right. And they'd be thinking, right, this is the bit where we start doing that rhythm on a beach. And this is where we'll add a bass line. All, all with their headphones on. So nobody knew what the other person was going to do. Sometimes we just read books and we recorded that. You know, sometimes everyone would just get really stoned and just kind of tell stupid stories. Um, other times we would just try and talk in Japanese, and that was that was a song, and we'd have to put atmospherics. Um, crazy, crazy. There was no, there was no. I have to know what it was. And then I remember the label booked us a big mix room in London and said, "Really excited to hear the mix. We booked you the mix room. Come down, mix the record." And I'm thinking, "What? What am I going to mix?" You know. I got I got seventy two hours of waves, the wave sounds. <laughs> I got, uh, and it was just yeah, to never saw the light of day. But they were the most interesting. Just their outlook. I mean, that one album I did with them, their their third album, in the quadrangle, we did that. I just loved that approach of um, we'd set, we'd have a blank canvas in the studio and we'd set up. We'd have a production meeting about how we wanted the drums to sound, whether there was going to be two drum kits, because they often did two drummers, yeah. um, what kind of guitar sounds, what kind of feel we wanted for the song. And then we would set up around that, and they would come out with crazy ideas, like it needs to sound like a thousand slaves dragging a statue across a you know gravel or whatever, and we'd actually go and find an old plough, and we'd drag it across the stones in Rockfield's courtyard. Um, or f I remember once it was like, we need a really kind of weird tuby echoey drum sound on this it's got to sound really kind of weird and a bit muffled so i didn't mic up the drums i mic'd up the drum cases which was all kind of sat around the drums so yeah. i put them near kind of one near the bass drum one near the snare one one in kind of stereo position either side of the kit and yeah so how we worked on um well album three which is the second album proper if you count the first um three pieces of first album then it was album three um yeah, so we'd have a reason, well, the reason they were kind of so creative and kind of it was a bit different and exciting. They just worked differently, really. So what we would do is we'd have a production meeting on how we wanted the track to go. So the studio is a blank canvas at this point, whether we do the drums outside, whether we do them in a cupboard, whether we do them in the drum room, in the dead room, um, whether there'd be two drummers, three drummers, you know, what, what was going to be on there what kind of samples, what kind of feel it would have. And that would be the production meeting, basically building a picture up of how the track was going to be. And then once that was decided, we'd um, go about setting up then. Um, and we might have decided that, you know, the drums should be outside and we'd set up outside, blah, blah, blah. Or they might say the drums need to sound really hollow and like they're kind of muffled. Um, so what I, what I did once, rather than just putting the old tea towels on and put them in a the dead room, I put them in the big drum room. Um, and then instead of micing up the drums, I put the drum cases, which were kind of all scattered around the uh, the drum kit. I kind of put one in front of the bass drum, one underneath the snare, two either side in like a stereo. And I put the mics inside the drum kit so that they were kind of in front of the instruments roughly, but um, they was in, inside drum kits to try and get that really kind of muffled uh, muffled sound. It was just, just something unique, really, because they were all about creating their own unique sounds and their own unique samples rather than just using samples, just create them. Um, and then I had this idea that uh, 
I, I could push the pool table that was in the big drum room there at Rockfield in the quadrangle in front of the drum kit. So literally pushed it right in front of the bass drum. Um, and my idea was that the, especially the bass drum would shoot up the, the hole where you know, the white ball would come out. And I mic'd up all the pockets with 57s, so I guess uh, 657s on the pockets. And my idea was that you'd get some kind of flutter echoes and some kind of weird kind of um, hollow kind of ambient um, kind of reflections in there. Um, and it worked amazing. So that with the, mixed with the, the drum mics inside drum cases um, and the pool table mic'd up, pushed in front of the kit... Uh, these 657s and then I had a stereo ambience in the room as well 87s just to capture that room of, of his actual yeah. kit and that was that was the I can't remember which song it was on the Heroes to Zeros but that was the drum sound for that song so we you know it was about creating these unique sounds so it was like real really taxing because it was like we couldn't just pull sounds off the internet or from sound libraries or anything it was how can we create this you know the sound of dragging um, something a, a big rock across the um, stones you know getting a plow and recording that and recording it like 80 times or whatever so we could really build it up so it sounded like a thousand slaves you know is uh so yeah really interesting and, and as an engineer like demanding but um really interesting to do and so we would do you know, get get the backing track done then and all the guitars and the bass and the kind of guide vocal and everything the backing track would be done that would be day one and then we'd go into day two which would be overdubs and they had this way of working where they would go off to their own little station. So I guess it's like working nowadays, we work remotely. So someone's in America working on guitars, someone's in, you're in Ireland, say, doing the bass. I'm doing um, the mixing, everything and production in Spain or wherever, in, or in Wales. So it's kind of like that. They'd be off in their own little part of the studio and they'd have their own workstation, which involved, I think, maybe a little M-Box or something back in them days, if it was even that then. And they'd have their own, their Akai samplers, They'd have record decks, they'd have cassette decks, um, they'd have their instruments. So like Robin would have like his trumpets around and they all played a lot of instruments so that they would have all these instruments around and percussion and they'd sit and work on the track individually, not really knowing what the other person was doing apart from stuff that we discussed in the production meeting, which I found amazing that they put in parts down not knowing what the other guy's putting on it and there'd be samples from old films that they were famous for and their kind of um, beats and stuff would come in. So they'd all have the track that we recorded the day before on their, yeah. um, on their computers, and then they'd just be overdubbing to it and layering it in. And then what they would do is bring it into me, which became known as the hub. So I was the central hub in the studio. They'd bring all their parts in, and I'd have to kind of make them work together. And it would kind of be like the first time they were each hearing what they'd done on top of this track. So the buzz was, oh, what has he done? What's he, you know, what's John put on this? Oh, what are we going to get here? And it's distorted bass coming in and then extra drum things coming in and samples of old records. And, and it's amazing just making it work really creative. Um, so guests kind of like working remotely now, although people tend to know a bit more about what each other's doing. Um, and they'd bring it in and I'd kind of make it all work and we'd kind of slot it all in, figure out together what worked and what didn't, maybe redo some bits. And then we'd get the vocals down, Steve would lay loads of harmonies and we'd work on effects and all that. And then that would be the song recorded after the end of day two. Um, all high five, all have a pint, go down the pub, whatever we did. And then um, <laughs> drive across golf courses. Um, <laughs> and, then, and, then, uh, and then day three would be mix it. So we'd spend the day mixing, they'd sit with me for a while, then I'd, they'd go off maybe to the pub or to whatever and sit in the other room and then I'd carry on and they'd come back in the evening we'd kind of finish the mix off together um, really holding on it and that was it finished 
yeah. uh, day three. So you you just created this piece of art from start to finish, the pre-production, the backing track, the overdubs, the mix. And that was it. That song then is then put out of your mind. It's gone. And we break the studio down. It's not like we leave everything set up to so we can... Everything had to be different. So the studio would yeah. get packed down. It's a blank canvas again. We'd start again, production meeting, and exactly the same method for the next song and build that track. And you're only ever thinking about one song at a time, which is really nice yeah. as a producer and engineer. Um, yeah. And you're really getting a unique kind of sound. Some people say, oh, but it's nice to have a thread on the album where it's the same drum sound or it's the same guitar sound. But that wasn't... That wasn't them. They were all about each treating each song individually as a separate piece of art. But because they had such a unique way of doing things and individually their personalities always came across on records, I still think that their albums have a thread and like a common theme and sound. They don't sound disjointed. They sound like a body of work because they're so... Um, in they have these strong personalities and that sound and the way they do things and the grooves that they use, like using the MPC 66% swing, which is a kind of a classic beat band thing, which is still used today, actually. Um, yeah, I think I've showed you that. Showed you that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, so they had that, and then they had that um, strong identity anyway. So then we do two songs, so three days the first song, three days the second song, Saturday night, everyone out of the pub, levered, Sunday, hangover, chill out, day off. Monday morning, start again until we did the album. Right. Three days of track loop, doing it like that, and I loved so working how long, like so that. Was that was that sticking to kind of like the four to six week rule? Yeah, yeah. 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 So we are weak for to do two songs. So yeah. you know we do like you know twelve, fourteen songs or whatever on the album. So yeah, six, seven weeks. Yeah, okay. Um, and then obviously it would um, there might be a couple of days booked then to just do um, mix changes because obviously you didn't you didn't have studios at home and then so you'd have to go into a studio and just do a couple of days of mix changes and that was it really creative yeah. really really interesting band to work with um and was that all like laid down to tape or was that like was this kind of the start we, of, like, pro, that was the kind that or? was the start of it yeah that was the start of it it was um i remember that with that one it was back in the day where pro tools wasn't really integrated into the studio yet i still think they might have mm. been hiring machines in at that point because um, I remember I was sat on a tall stool with the keyboard and the screen on top of the tall flight case. It wasn't even on a desk. Yeah. There was nowhere to put it anywhere else. So I'm sat up high working on this, uh, On this, I think it was pretty, a rental rig, actually. Um, right. So, yeah, very early days of Pro Tools at Rockfield. Yeah. And were you doing anything to tape at that point, or is it just literally...? Yeah, we would do stuff to tape, and we'd do some backwards it? stuff to tape, and we'd do tape phase, so I'd line up the two machines, and they wanted the symbols to phase again with them rather than putting the AMS over it or something like that, we would actually create the tape phase. So I'd get the two machines going and I'd literally slow them down my hands and get the tape, the cymbal phase going on the drums or on the vocals, whatever we were putting it on. And I suppose like what worked for that album then was like the structure and stuff saying, right, we're going to do a production meeting, we're going to do the body of the track, do the overdubs and like, you know, two songs a week. Um, yeah. So if we just went back to the next album where we were in Scotland, was that structure there or was it let's just record sounds and... There was no structure whatsoever. <laughs> no structure whatsoever to, to that. That was just record sounds, an atmospheric album. I think maybe the label had been forcing them into trying to make guitar records on their, on their second album and stuff and be more commercial. That wasn't what they were about. So maybe there was a slight protest in that. I don't know whether they wanted to make something completely anti that. Mm. Um, it, did, it really didn't go down well with the label whatsoever. There's kind of artist power, 
And I don't think that at the time they thought they had power and could do what the hell they wanted to. I don't think that was it. I think it was just let's let's we've got this budget to make this album let's go and see what happens let's do something completely out there in typical beat yeah. band fashion let's do something mind-blowing and also a, a, a you know it's bonding thing we're up in these mountains staying in these cabins overlooking the summer isles amazing on a beach um and like drinking in the local pubs and it's right in the middle of nowhere and it was yeah, loads of, loads of shit went on. Loads of crazy, crazy, crazy antics went on. So we had a great time. Um, so the camaraderie and the kind of bonding thing was good. I don't know. Yeah, trying. we had so many hours and hours and hours of footage and um, and atmosphere and music and, you know, pushing cars off cliffs and recording that and uh, just craziness um, to try. and. I mean, it would have taken weeks and weeks and weeks and we would have lost our minds if we tried to put it into an album. How do you mic up a car being pushed off a cliff? Right. So what happens here is the the um, so the the technical method of this is find find a young Welsh person called Brino, <laughs> get him to have two portable DAT players with belt clips either side on his belt, and two uh, Sony stereo microphones um, into said DAT players. Send so drive along the um, Scottish countryside in the middle of nowhere until you find an old car on top of a cliff. Then make make Brino climb down the cliff into the sea and stand on rocks at the bottom of the cliff. <laughs> no health and safety here. We weren't working for the BBC, so <laughs> so we we kind of got this track right, and we'd been working on it, and it was where we were doing like pebbles and barrels on a beach, and it kind of builds up, and there was car door car windows going up and down for the rhythm. We'd recorded that yeah. going along and stuff like this. And this this um, track had a big crescendo, and we were kind of like, ah, oh, you know, like in Day of the Life when the, it builds and builds, and then five million pianos do a note at the end. Well, what happens if ours weren't five pianos? What happens if our crescendo finished with the crash of a car being pushed off a cliff and hitting rocks in the sea? Everyone was like, brilliant. And I was like, brilliant, until I realised, yeah, I'd have to record it. So, yeah, I, <laughs> I find a way down. I'm literally, I mean, it's a wild, wild, wild ocean. There's like 30-foot waves crashing these rocks on this cliff face. And I found these, like, walked out a bit into these into the middle of the sea on standing on these rocks. And I'm looking up, and they're all up there, thumbs up, like laughing laughing their heads off because they're like he's actually down there doing this and i'm thinking one big wave and i'm gone i'm swept off you know and they're just shouting don't go in don't go in you'll lose all the great stuff we've recorded today don't go in because the dats will be ruined so yeah yeah don't worry about your life Uh... (laughs) yeah the dats will be swept away they'll end up in uh you know in, in america at some point but um yeah so i'm there and they're pushing off and i'm standing there holding these two mics in the air like this and thinking this is the worst idea we've ever had and uh they're pushing it at first it just wouldn't budge it obviously been there while it was all rested this car first it didn't budge and then all of a sudden it got a bit of give a bit of momentum and they're kind of like going with it and at first i thought they were going to go over the cliff with it because it just flew and then there's that silence of when the car's just in midair and i'm thinking like, is this just going to explode into a million pieces and hit me in the face? <laughs> you know, because I'm not that far away from it. But it didn't. It just hit the rocks and just went into smithereens. And uh, obviously met with loads of cheers and uh, <laughs> high fives from, from the top of the cliff. 
And uh, yeah, that was that. I had to, had to climb back up, got it, listened back to it, checked we had it, we had it. It was amazing with the sounds of the waves and the rocks and everything in the background and then the whoosh as it came off and then the big crash. So yeah, good night was had that night. I think we paid 50 quid each for a shot of whiskey in the local pub just to celebrate. I know that... Um Obviously, the, the album wasn't, you know, like when it comes to mixing it, you said that it wasn't well received by the label. Did that album ever come out? Did anything ever happen with those recordings? No. I imagine they've they've got themselves a library of samples and sounds that they've probably integrated into their music since, you know. Yeah. Um, but they weren't on the label after that. <laughs> no, I didn't work with them again. <laughs> so the, the label, the label or the band. But no, we stayed friends and we had a great time. We had some great yeah. times. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah brilliant. amazing guys amazing band to work with happy memories great great memories yeah. but yeah, so that kind of leads on a little bit then obviously to working with teenage fan club um my yeah. right in thinking you came in on um howdy yeah 2000 yeah. so they'd done yeah. obviously like um grand prix songs from northern britain yeah. um love that you, band and was it at that point, I think they'd been produced previously, and they were they were I think they're credited as producers in your engineering. Yes, yeah. So they brought me in as an engineer. I'd met them already, I, so I I knew them. They were a creation band, so yeah. Our paths had crossed. Um, the main time our paths crossed was at Air Studios when they came in to listen to uh, the playback of "Be Here Now" and were pinned right. to the back wall by the deafening PA and Liam singing the entire album this far away from their faces <laughs> absolutely trolleyed <laughs> i can't remember who was there me liam maybe brian cannon i think i'm not sure um and teenage fan club just sat at the back of the room liam screaming at them you know you're the best you're the second best band in the world you guys and all that. um so yeah i'd met them so i knew them and then they'd wanted to go to rockfield and then they obviously knew about me working with creation and met them up there and um yeah, was brought in to do to do the album, and I loved that band. And uh, start of a very very long friendship, and another amazing band to work with. Talented guys, lovely guys, great. Loved the way they work, their creativeness, their harmonies, the the sounds they get. Raymond's a fantastic producer, engineer as well. Um, mm. Yeah, we buzzed and we got to go to some amazing studios. We got to yeah, obviously used Rockfield for stuff, but. Um, we went around London, we went up to studios in Glasgow with them, um, recorded in Raymond's house. We went to uh, Dave Gilmore's Barge on the Thames, did some stuff there. Yeah, and it was great. And obviously that was the last record on Creation, although they'd gone to Sony at that point. But Alan McGee used to come in, so I knew Alan, and he'd come in yeah. and um, it was just like he loves that band. Um, obviously because he signed them but yeah one of his favourite bands um, brilliant times with them guys met loads of amazing people made some great records but Howdy was the first one yeah which was really well received as well yeah so this is obviously like I think it's about 2000 isn't it yeah um, at this point I think Darkness a little bit way off but then like you, you do the second album with the Darkness and Rockfield as well yeah, a few, that was a few years later, like a few yeah. years after that. So there's a couple more teenage fan club um, fan club bits in there, but um, yeah, that was kind of for music that period, that transition, that 2001, when the industry really, really changed because of the onset mm. of digital and um, downloads and yeah, uh, Pro Tools coming into every studio. The industry changed. The studios like Rockford really suffered. Um, massive dip in in business um people looking to do other things other forms of income revenue streams obviously i think we touched on it before we went from having a producer an engineer a programmer and a 
assistant to one guy expected to do all those jobs all of a sudden with an yeah. assistant maybe if you were lucky um on on the same budget as you were getting before so now you were doing four people's jobs for the same money as when you, you was just doing one job um so the industry really changed around that period um yeah. lots of our those six week sessions just stopped bands would come in they'd just maybe come in just do the drums or the backing tracks they'd be in just for a few days those six all of a sudden those long sessions where you could guarantee a nice long income you knew you were working on this album for six eight ten twelve weeks they were kind of not happening really um yeah that was for a period of like five years until um i got the call from roy thomas baker um and dan actually from the darkness to um would i like to be the engineer on their second album obviously they'd gone massive and at the time biggest rock band in 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 the world and uh massive singles and yeah it was time for album two which they decided to use roy and Obviously, they, it's well known they love Queen and there's a big Queen influence. Okay, so cool. Thanks very much for watching episode two. I uh, hope you really like this podcast. Um, what we'd really appreciate is if there's any feedback, if there's any um, comments or questions you have for us, you can drop us an email at podcast at sessionrecall.com uh, or leave us a comment on the YouTube channel if you're watching us there. Um, we do have a community that we're opening up shortly for a very, very small subscription per month which you can access just by um, heading over to sessionrecall.com and there'll be some information on the website there for you the next episode kind of carries on from where we are today and it's covering more about like a next time in norfolk and obviously like time at leaders farm the we've got a few episodes coming up now but if you have any questions or suggestions for content please just drop us an email as i've already said but thanks again for watching give us a like and subscribe and i'll see you all again in the next podcast